Welcome to the Best of St. Joseph Radio, a program that for more than 30 years has sought out eloquent speakers throughout the world to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. People who seek to put Christ first in their lives, living the Father's will, witnessing to His grace, love, and forgiveness. Now with the aid of technology, we are able to reach the four corners of the world with the gospel message, where Christ Himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. Brothers and sisters, sit back, relax, and open your ears and heart to the good news on the best of St. Joseph Radio Presents. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Ed Hogan. Ed has a Ph.D. in Systematic Theology from Boston College. He has taught theology on the high school, college, and graduate levels, as well as in parishes and adult faith formation programs. Ed served as Director of Deacon Formation, Director of the Center for Ministry, and the Director of the Department of of Formation for the Diocese of Saginaw, Michigan. He currently serves the Archdiocese of St. Louis as Director of the Pontifical Paul VI Institute, of Catechetical and Pastoral Studies, and Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Kenrick Lennon Seminary. Ed and his wife have six children and are members of St. Dominic Savio Parish. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ed Hogan. So we're here to talk about God's plan for marriage, and as we do so, very much aware of the question of same-sex marriage in our culture today. So I'll certainly frame things with an eye toward that. But First things first, this talk is actually part of the U.S. Bishop's call to prayer, not a call to talks. So we want to start with prayer and end with prayer and maybe have some prayer in the middle. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Again, crowds gathered around Jesus, and as was his custom, he taught them. The Pharisees approached and asked, Is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife? They were testing him. He said to them in reply, What did Moses command you? They replied, Moses permitted him to write a bill of divorce and dismiss her. But Jesus told them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. Heavenly Father, we know that the hearts of the Israelites were hard, and we know that the hearts of the Pharisees were hard, and so they did not hear your word. Jesus Christ. Father, we know that our hearts are hard too in different ways. And so we ask you in the name of Jesus to send upon us the Holy Spirit that we may receive the word spoken by Jesus Christ and the word who is Jesus Christ. That his word may be a seed that falls upon fertile soil and bears fruit thirty and sixty and a hundredfold in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So let me just give you an overview of what we're going to do tonight. This is partly so that you know where I'm going. It's partly so you know when I'll be done. This is always helpful with a speaker. So first we'll look at some basic principles of morality and law. Basic logic here. Then we'll look at what does the body itself tell us about God's plan for marriage. Here, for those who are familiar with the language, we'll be talking about the theology of the body. For those who are familiar with a different kind of language, this is the natural law perspective on marriage. Then we'll look at what does the Old Testament say, and we'll look at what does the New Testament say, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers. The point of tonight's presentation is not to answer every question that there is, but to provide a framework 
for discussion. So often what happens is you get involved in a conversation and you get 50 different questions from 45 different angles in the space of three minutes. And unless you have the total framework in hand, it's hard to make any headway on any of those questions or to know just what to say to stop the attack from coming. Well, that's what we want to help with tonight. Three preliminary points that I want to make. What are some things that you need to already have in hand as you enter into any discussion about God's plan for marriage? The first is love. You need to have love for those that you're in conversation with. Especially you need to have love for our brothers and sisters who suffer from same-sex attraction. In 1997, the U.S. bishops issued a document, and it was written for parents of children who identify as gay or lesbian. And that document had to go to the Vatican for a little nuance in some of its languages, in some of its language, and it came out just fine. But one of the things it got stunningly right and enduringly right was its title. Remember, it was directed to parents of children who identify as gay and lesbian. And the title of the document was Always Our Children. This was the fundamental presupposition that the bishops wanted people to have. You are always my child. I may not always approve of the way you act, but this is what you will see in my eyes. I love you, and you are always my son, always my daughter. And we can adopt that. You are always my brother. You are always my sister. You are always my friend. So love needs to be a presupposition, but the thing you need to understand is don't suppose that love is the same thing as tolerance. It is not. The question I'm fond of asking is, was Jesus tolerant? There's a meme floating around on Facebook these days. Some friends sent it to me. And it says, remember, the next time someone asks, what would Jesus do? That freaking out and flipping over tables is an option. (laughs) See, that's a happy way to put it. Jesus, by his own actions, shows that he was not tolerant. But I think the best place maybe to grasp what would Jesus do, is to look at John chapter 8. How would Jesus handle these questions? In John 8, this is what we read. Early in the morning, Jesus arrived again in the temple area, and all the people started coming to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and made her stand in the middle. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? You see, they think they've got him. Because they know that Jesus teaches love. And they think, well, if he teaches love in this instance, then he's going to have to set aside the law of Moses. But as soon as he sets aside the law of Moses, he exposes himself as a false prophet. Oh, we've got him this time. They said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground with his finger. But when they continued asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he bent down and wrote on the ground. And in response they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Why beginning with the elders? I don't know about you, but the older I get, the better I know my sins. And the more quickly they knew their sins right away. So he was left alone with the woman before him. Then Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replied, No one, sir. Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't tolerate anyone in that episode. He didn't let the Pharisees do any violence to her. He certainly protected her. But what he did not say was, it's all good. Because it was not all good. He said, go and sin no more. I'm not going to condemn you. But I am going to call this a sin. Because you know it's right and I know it's not right. And in your heart of hearts, you want more for yourself than this. And in my heart of hearts, I want more for you than this. Jesus loved everyone in that passage, and his love was a challenge to the Pharisees, and his love was consolation and forgiveness 
for the woman, and I bet you it was a source of conversion for her. Jesus was not tolerant. Jesus loved people and drew lines. And so often our society wants us either to love people or to draw lines. Love them, but don't draw any lines. Or draw the lines and don't love them. What would Jesus do? Jesus loved people and drew lines. Next presupposition, you have to distinguish between the attraction and the act. Now, so often what people don't say, but what they're thinking is, you know, that's an artificial distinction. And I never hear that come up except in this case. So can't we just get rid of that distinction? Because it's strange and it's exclusive to this case. I don't think it's a strange distinction. And I don't think it's exclusive to this case. What are some other examples where it comes up? Well, if you've ever had a friend who was an alcoholic, then you know this distinction. If you've ever known someone who suffered from anorexia and bulimia, then you know this distinction. If you've ever known a young lady who was cutting herself, then you know this distinction. It comes up all over the place. The principle is the same. Just because you have an inclination towards something doesn't mean that you should act on it. In so many ways in our life, we have inclinations toward all kinds of things. And morality requires that we not act on them. In fact, preaching on this recently, a friend of mine looked out at his congregation and said, so how many of you married people have ever been attracted to someone not your spouse? And if it was up to you, you wouldn't have that attraction. But you do. The fact that you have it and that you didn't choose it, does that mean you should act on it? Not at all. This is part of what concerns me in the whole conversation, that the underlying philosophy of our culture seems to be four points. One, if you have an attraction, then two, you should act on it. And three, you can't be fulfilled in your life unless you act on that attraction. And four, in fact, for you to be fulfilled, society not only has to let you do it, it has to approve of your doing it. I think that's a disastrous moral philosophy. And when we teach it to our children, they believe it. And so any inclination they have, they're going to act on and require that we approve. This is not good, and my fear is that people will believe it. The third and last preliminary point, what is this younger generation telling us? I'm trying to listen to them and hear the questions they're asking. But I think underneath it all, I hear this thread that the younger generation is saying to us, the older generation, look, you're the people who brought us the culture of abortion, the culture of divorce, and the culture of... And so when you talk to us about sex and marriage, we don't think that you know what you're talking about. So when it comes to this question, we're going to try to figure it out on our own. Thank you very much. And you know what? They've got us. We did bring them the culture of abortion, the culture of divorce, and the culture of pornography. And so we have lost our credibility with a younger generation. And so maybe, what's the point of all that? I mean, that sounds like pretty bad news. Maybe the point of all that is this, that maybe the most important thing that I can do on this whole topic is to pay attention to my wife and children and to be ready to lay down my life and sacrifice for them in a thousand small ways every day. Maybe I need to help recover credibility when it comes to sex and marriage. In other words, maybe we need to clean up our own house as part of the whole project. Otherwise, we will see moral credibility. All right. I want to take a look at a couple of questions that people seem to be asking and see if we can provide some answers to them. A basic question right off the bat seems to be this. Isn't the question of same-sex marriage today basically the same as the question of interracial marriage in the 1960s? To which the answer, I think, is quite simply, no, it's not the same. Well, isn't it just about who can get married? Uh-uh. See, in the 1960s, the question was, who can get married? 
Today, the question is what marriage is. Before and after the debate in the 1960s, the definition of marriage changed. Sorry, the definition of marriage stayed the same. Before and after the debate today, the definition of marriage is changing. And that's how we're expanding the pool of who can get married. No, it's two different questions. The question then was who can get married. The question today is what marriage is. So what is marriage? In order to answer that question, you need what I call a differential principle. Now that may seem like a strange term, but let me explain what it means and then give some examples. This is a principle that makes a difference between what's ruled in and what's ruled out. It's a principle that makes a difference in morality between what's ruled in as moral and what's ruled out as immoral. It's a principle that makes a difference in the law between what's ruled in as legal and what's ruled out as not legal. For example, one prevalent attitude today seems to be, hey, listen, whatever consenting adults decide to do with their bodies is okay. How does that come into the question? Same-sex marriage should be allowed because whatever consenting adults decide to do with their bodies is okay. Well, my question back is, if that's your principle, then what else did you rule in? Let's take a look. You just ruled in adultery and prostitution and polygamy and drug trafficking. Why? Because those are things that consenting adults decide to do with their bodies. In other words, just to make it clear, if whatever consenting adults decide to do with their bodies is your principle, legally and morally, then adultery and prostitution and polygamy and drug trafficking are all ruled in along with same-sex marriage. Yes, you got same-sex marriage in, but at what cost? If you don't want to rule in all of those things, then whatever consenting adults decide to do with their bodies is not a good differential principle, not legally and not morally, because it rules in too much. Well, okay, somebody might say, but, I mean, really, there's no such thing as right and wrong. Here's moral relativism. And even if there is, who are you to impose your values on someone else? Same-sex marriage should be allowed because there's no right and wrong and because you can't impose your values on someone else. Again, my question is, if that's your principle, what else did you rule in and what else did you rule out? And I'm sorry to say that in this case, you just ruled in rape and murder. Why? Because you said there's no such thing as right and wrong. But just as importantly, what did you rule out? You ruled out the Civil War, the liberation of the concentration camps, the civil rights movement, and child protective services. Because in every one of those cases, there was one group of people imposing their values on another group of people. And I don't know about you, but I think there should be child protective services. Sometimes the state needs to step in and say, you can't do that with your child. But the bottom line is this, to put it very simply, every law, from tax laws to gun laws, either requires us to do something or requires us not to do something. Every law imposes a value. And if you can't impose values, you just ruled out every law. So again, just to make it clear, if there's no such thing, sorry, if there's no such thing as right and wrong as your principle, then everything is ruled in and all laws are ruled out. But if you don't want to rule in everything and rule out all laws, then there's no such thing as right and wrong is not a good differential principle. It rules in too much. It rules out too much. Well, okay, someone will say, but this is different because they're not doing any harm to anyone else. Oh, so that's your principle. Same-sex marriage should be allowed because it doesn't do harm to anyone else. Well, once again, I asked the question, in. I had a high school junior once say that in a classroom full of high school girls. She said, as long as there's no harm to anyone else, it's okay. And I saw one student 
Her face went ashen. And I knew in that moment that she had a bulimic friend because she knew it wasn't doing harm to anyone else and that didn't make it okay. And so I just had to explain to them this idea, if that's your principle, what else did you rule in? Anorexia and bulimia are in because they don't do harm to anyone else. Suicide is in because it doesn't do harm to anyone else. Alcoholism and drug use are in because they don't do harm to anyone else. Again, the point is, if you say that there's no harm to anyone else, therefore it's okay, then all these things are ruled in. And if you don't want to rule them in, then there's no harm to anyone else isn't a good differential principle. It rules in too much. Now, my students, if they're thinking straight, and they should be, will then raise the objection, but, but those are different because they do physical and psychological harm to the person doing them. But this, same-sex marriage, doesn't. Well, I'll bracket the question for a second of whether or not it does physical harm and psychological harm and simply raise the ante and say, but does it do moral harm to the person? Well, what would be an example of moral harm? Well, telling lies that don't harm anyone else still does moral harm to the person telling them. The bottom line is this. We judge harm by the gospel. And we're concerned even if a person is only harming themselves. We judge harm by the gospel. And we're concerned even if a person is only harming themselves. Well, okay, someone might say, but doesn't same-sex attraction... Oops, sorry. Doesn't same-sex attraction have a scientific cause, a material basis? Isn't it genetic or behavioral or neurochemical? And doesn't that make it okay? Well, I don't know whether or not there is a scientific basis for it. I don't need to resolve that question, in fact. I can simply raise the question on the level of thought. Do you want to use that as a principle? Whatever has a scientific basis, be it genetic or behavioral or neurochemical, is okay. If that's your principle, what else did you rule in? In this case, you ruled in depression and alcoholism and schizophrenia. Why? Because all of these have scientific bases. They are genetic or behavioral or neurochemical. Again, if whatever has a scientific basis is your principle, then all of these things are ruled in. Yes, same-sex attraction is ruled in, but at what cost? If you don't want to rule all these in, then whatever has a scientific basis is not a good differential principle, not legally and not morally, because it rules in too much. Okay, kids will ask me, what's the difference between an infertile heterosexual couple and a homosexual couple? Why? Because you allow marriage between an infertile heterosexual couple, even though they can't have kids. So here I've got a same-sex couple, and they can't have kids, but you won't let them get married. You tell me, what's the difference? I had a college group once, and they were rather adamant about this. They said, you tell us what's the difference between an infertile heterosexual couple and a same-sex couple, since neither of them can have kids. Well, I wasn't going to do their work for them. I said, no, I'll tell you what. You people are bright. You tell me the difference. Here I have a heterosexual couple, and they're infertile. And here I have a same-sex couple, and they can't have kids. What's the difference? There's about a 10-second pause. And one young man raised his hand, and he said, well... If the heterosexual couple is infertile, it's because something went wrong. That's the kind of relationship that leads to children, but something has gone wrong in it. Whereas if the same-sex couple can't have children, it's because that's the nature of their relationship. Nothing has gone wrong there. That relationship never leads to children under any circumstances. That's it. He got it. On the level of common sense, he articulated a metaphysics. Look at these. They are not the same. They're different from one another. More precisely, what is the difference? The difference is 
the kind of union from which children come, even if no children actually come from it, versus the kind of union, the kind of act from which children do not come under any circumstances. So a couple, a heterosexual couple, even if they're both 75 years old, is still engaged in the kind of act and the kind of union from which children come, even if no children come from it. Even if the woman has had a complete hysterectomy, it's still the kind of act from which children come. And the same-sex couple is engaged in a different kind of act. A simple analogy for it. Let's suppose that Albert Pujols is not hitting home runs and LeBron James is not hitting home runs. If Albert Pujols is not hitting home runs, it's because something is wrong with his game. If LeBron James is not hitting home runs, it's because he's playing a different kind of game. So unjust discrimination means treating things differently when they are, in fact, the same. But these kinds of acts are not the same. So it's not unjust to treat them differently. As my friend, Father Brian Harrison says, suppose that a violin player is excluded from a brass band. The violin player cannot claim unjust discrimination for being excluded from the brass band because the violin player is doing something else. And if violin playing is a good thing, it's a different kind of a thing than being in a brass band. Well, okay, but look, isn't this, when it all comes right down to it, a question of civil rights? This is where we need to step back and think this through just a little bit on a deeper level. I don't think it is. I don't think this is a matter of society allowing or not allowing something. This is a question of whether or not something is possible. And this is why Archbishop Cordelione in San Francisco said, look, it's not a question of civil rights whether or not men should be allowed to breastfeed. They can't. You can pass legislation allowing it. What you can't do is make it possible. It's not a question of civil rights whether or not men should be allowed to be mothers. They can't. You can pass legislation allowing it. What you can't do is make it possible. I think the case is similar here. The question is not whether I should be allowed to marry whomever I choose, a man or a woman. The question is whether or not a man and a man or a woman and a woman can form the kind of union that is marriage. If marriage is only a matter of shared affection, they can and we should allow it. Then it's a question of civil rights. But if marriage also involves the kind of union from which children come, then they cannot. And no amount of legislation can make it possible because the body of a man and a man and the body of a woman and a woman don't go together that way. It's not a matter of denying someone civil rights. That's something we should never do. It's a question of admitting what is and isn't possible. It's a question of what marriage is. That's why Cardinal George said, and I like this, a proposal to change this truth about marriage and civil law is less a threat to religion than it is an affront to human reason. It means we're all to pretend to accept something we know is physically impossible. The legislature might just as well repeal the law of gravity. You see what he's saying? You can pass a law allowing people to ignore gravity. What you can't do is make it possible. That's what Cardinal George is saying. Right? An affront to human reason to say this, the union of a man and a woman, is the same thing as the union of a man and a man. When we know they're not. So, okay, let's shift gears a little bit. Because then, at some point, people will say to you, sure, okay, that's fine, but you haven't offered anything. All you've done is to say what doesn't work as a differential principle. So you try to set something up. Well, what strategy does the Catholic Church propose for establishing a differential principle on marriage? Father Richard John Newhouse, God rest his soul, once said, the case against same-sex relations cannot be sustained by cherry-picking biblical passages. 
I've got Leviticus 18 and 1 Corinthians 6. Boom! End of case. No, because if, if whatever's in Leviticus is your differential principle, whatever Leviticus says, that's in. Okay, then you can't get the hair around your temples cut or you should die. And you can possess slaves, provided they're purchased from neighboring nations. So you run into a little bit of trouble there with Leviticus. So, so let's just throw out Leviticus. No, no, no you, you don't want to throw out the word of God. What if what Leviticus says is consistent with the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well? Then you can't throw it out without getting rid of all of that. It's a little more complex than simply letting it all in or throwing it all out, right? So what does it require? A considered understanding of human sexuality based on both natural law, what anyone can realize based on human experience and reason alone, and revealed truth. What does God teach us about marriage? So this is what the Catholic Church proposes. Let's look at the natural law. What's written on the body itself about God's plan for marriage? And then what's revealed, what's written in the Old Testament and what's written in the New Testament? So let's look at those things. In order to do that, we need to back up for just a second and point out something about the relationship between the body and the soul. And it's as simple as two points. First point is this. Sometimes we laugh and sometimes we cry. And I just want you to think about that for a second. What does that mean? When we are filled with gladness, that spiritual truth expresses itself in an action of the body. We laugh. And when we're filled with sadness, that spiritual truth, the truth on the level of the soul, expresses itself in an action of the body. We cry. When you're nervous, it's not just a state of mind. You have sweaty palms. You have butterflies in your stomach. Confusion automatically wrinkles the brow. This is one of the lovely things about teaching. I can read the faces of my students. Oh, that didn't make any sense to you, did it? We need to back up and do a little more work there. Anger clenches the jaw and the fist. In so many different ways, we express truths of the soul through the body. So that's the first point. Sometimes we laugh and sometimes we cry. The second point is as simple as this. Have you ever heard this phrase? Does somebody need a hug? If somebody needs a hug, it's not because there's a problem with their body. It's because there's a problem with their spirit. And you address it in an action of the body. Think of when you were a child and when your parents said that they were pleased with you. And did they just give you a little pat on the head or actually physically a pat on the back? And how important was that physical touch? You know how important it is because you know what it's like to receive a very stiff handshake or a very limp handshake versus a very heartfelt handshake or to receive an A-frame hug. That doesn't touch my soul. That's not what I need. Versus a heartfelt hug, which reaches through the body and touches the heart in so many different ways on a day-to-day basis. Not only do we express truths of the soul through the body, we receive truths into the soul through the body. Well, that's just a fact based on human experience. The question becomes, what is God trying to tell us through all of this? And I think what God is trying to tell us is this. You can't separate the soul and the body in this life. In fact, there's only one time at which the body and the soul become separated from one another. And what do we call that? Death. So if, as you talk about sexual morality, you're trying to separate the soul from the body and say, look, this is just a subjective matter. It's a question of affection. It's got nothing to do with the body. Let's forget about that. If you're separating the soul and the body, you are choosing death. That's it. Very simple. Okay, so what's written on the body? I want to just look at some facts about the body. Here are four facts about the body that I think are important. One, the bodies of men and women are not like each other. Or, more accurately, they're like each other in some ways and not like each other in other ways. Second, the way that the bodies of men and women are not like each other, they are made to go together. Third, the way the bodies of men and women are made to go together, leave the man and the woman face to face with each other. 
That's a fact not without importance, especially as you see, if you've heard anything about how things are going on the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade levels, the sexual depravity is stunning. It's amazing what's happening, right? These kids know somewhere in their hearts that something is wrong, but they don't have the language to express it. Part of what's wrong is degrading. Lastly, the bodies of men and women and the way they're not like each other are made to go together, leaving the man and woman face to face in a union that opens out into life. What is God trying to tell us through these facts about the body? What I want to do is just unpack each of those facts a little bit. First, the fact that the bodies of men and women are not like each other. This is what Rabbi Gilles Bernheim had to say about this in an essay that he put together from various sources. He said, I'm one of those who believe that a human being is not an autonomous construction with no given structure, order, status, or role. I believe that the affirmation of freedom does not imply the negation of limits, and that the affirmation of equality does not imply the leveling of differences. Equal in dignity, yes, but not the same. Our freedom is always a situated freedom. Whereas if you look at what's happened in California with the California transgender student law, what's basically behind that is the idea is that reality is whatever I decide it is. If I decide that I'm a woman, then the school must treat me as a woman. If a little boy decides he's a little girl, then now, according to California law, he can use the girl's restroom, use the girl's locker room, join the girl's sports teams, and vice versa. Reality is whatever I decide it is. Now look, my heart goes out to those kids and their parents, and we need to do everything we can to protect them. But that doesn't mean we pass into law the notion that reality is whatever I decide it is. Next, the bodies of men and women are made to go together. Christopher West had this to say, a man's body doesn't make sense by itself, nor does a woman's body. But seen in light of each other, sexual difference reveals the unmistakable plan of God that man and woman are meant to be a gift to one another. There you go. This is written into the body. The body of a man says, I was made to make a gift of myself to another and to receive the gift of another back. And the body of a woman says that. I was made to make a gift of myself and to receive the gift of another. Now, certainly as Catholics, we have a special perspective on that because we believe that that's what Jesus does for us in the Eucharist. He makes a gift of himself to us so that we might have life. But my point right now is not that Catholics have a special take on that. My point is that that same reality, which is at the heart of our faith, is written into the fabric of our bodies. We were made to make and receive a gift, almost as though God had planned for us to be prepared for the Eucharist from the beginning of creation. The fact that men and women end up face to face with one another. Here's what John Paul II had to say about that. Sexuality, by means of which man and woman give themselves to one another. There's the language of gift is by no means something purely biological. Why? Because you can never separate the body and the soul. They always go together. But it concerns the innermost being of the human person as such. There again, it concerns the body and the soul. And the face is the sign and sacrament of the person. Have you ever tried to get to know somebody who never looks you in the face? Or never shows you their face? And why doesn't that work? because the face is the sign and sacrament of the person. The total physical self-giving would be a lie if it were not the sign and fruit of a total personal self-giving in which the whole person is present. There you go. It's about a person-to-person union. That's very important. Here's something that Robbie George said in an article of which we also have the book here tonight. And I had never thought of it quite this way. He said, think of it this way. The organs of our body are complete in and of themselves with respect to one end, sustaining life. I don't need your organs to do that. That's what makes my organs one in the body. 
But the organs of our body are incomplete in and of themselves with respect to another end, reproduction. That is not something that I can do on my own. So in sexual intercourse, the body of a man and the body of a woman actually become one. Similar to the way in which our organs are one in the body because they are united for a common end. They become one flesh. So the point is that one flesh union is a biological fact before it's ever a theological concept. Finally, this, that the union of a man and a woman is the kind of act that is open to life, even if no life actually comes from it. And any other kind of sexual union, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, is the kind of act that is not open to life. Well, what happens when you repeat an act? It becomes a habit, for better and for worse. And what happens when habits become widespread? They form a culture. So what has our culture done? We have repeated acts over and over again that are not open to life. And we've created habits that are not open to life. And this has produced a culture of death. And where did that start? Not with homosexual people. That started with heterosexual people, deliberately making our acts not open to life over the course of 40 years and calling those acts marital. And now when same-sex attracted people want to call acts that are not open to life marital, these acts are life or they're not. It's a common standard. In so many ways, we have chosen against life. We see this certainly in abortion, but we see it in our video games. We see it in our movies. We see it in the news. Because what leads? Whatever bleeds. If it bleeds, it leads. And then we're surprised when it shows up in our schools? No, it's been building up all along on the level of acts that are not open to life. Finally, there is a basic underlying principle that I think is operative, and it's this. It's a catchy slogan, really. I have the right to be unlimited. You may think that your text messaging has the right to be unlimited, or that you should be on a 4G network. That's fine. But as a philosophical point, this fails. Only God is unlimited. So if we're claiming the right to be unlimited, we're claiming the right to be God. Ooh, to see where that heads. Well, first of all, simply, that's false. It doesn't work. Second, to see where it goes, read Genesis 2 and 3, and you'll see where it goes. But isn't it true that we've created a culture where we feel that we have the right to be unlimited? I remember having a, a discussion with juniors in high school about contraception. And I was teaching them the church's position on this. And one little girl, God bless her, very bright, raised her hand at the end of about a week and said, Dr. Hogan, you can talk to us until you're blue in the face about contraception. The fact of the matter is it's convenient to take a pill. And unless and until you convince us to do something inconvenient, we don't want to hear from you. Oh, my. Well, she had put her finger on something that I had missed. It wasn't about contraception. It was about convenience. And I started thinking about all the ways her life was convenient. And while I have nothing against drive through windows and microwaves and convenience stores, I realized that my problem was much broader than contraception. It was about convenience. And so I waited until the Olympics came around to teach her that sometimes excellence is not convenient. It takes a lot of hard work. Well, the same thing here. Have we created a culture in which we feel we have the right to be unlimited? That reality is whatever I decide it is. I think that's our problem. All right, let's shift gears a little bit and look at the Bible. Let's shift gears a little bit and be quiet and pray for a second. How about? That would be a good idea. Let's pause for just one minute of silent prayer. 
we recall that we are in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. Jesus, bless us. Mary, intercede for us. All holy men and women, pray for us. Thank you. Now let's look at the Bible. Bear in mind, the Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve. It ends with a marriage, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And right in the middle is a marriage, the marriage of God and humanity in Jesus Christ. So marriage isn't a peripheral issue in the Bible. It it doesn't just come up here and there. It's a bedrock theme of the Bible. Let's look at the Old Testament for a minute. What does the Old Testament tell us about the nature of marriage? Well, I open the Old Testament, and one of the first things I read is this. God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's all one verse in the Bible. God created humankind in his image and likeness as male and female. Sexual differentiation is written into the Imago Dei. If you want to get rid of sexual differentiation in the Bible, you have to eliminate the image and likeness of God. This is a dangerous proposition. Immediately after this, so in the image and likeness of God, male and female, the very next thing it says is God blessed them saying to them, be fruitful and multiply. The image and likeness of God, man and woman, in a union that brings forth life. And this is reinforced in Genesis 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one flesh. Man and woman in a one flesh union that leads to life. I haven't left the first two chapters of Genesis, and I already have a differential principle for marriage. That's how important marriage is to the Bible. The Catechism summarizes it this way, and it's important to bear in mind that the church is not creating a teaching here. The church is simply summarizing the teaching of the Bible. The union of man and woman in marriage is a way of imitating in the flesh, imitating because we're made in God's image and likeness, in the flesh because he made us in the flesh, the creator's generosity, his gift of himself to us, and his fecundity, his bringing forth life. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. All human generations proceed from this union. Paragraph 2335 of the Catechism, a simple summary of what you find in Genesis 1 and 2. By the way, as Rabbi Gilles Bernheim points out, in the seven days of creation, the animals are not presented as sexed beings. They're only presented, I'd never thought about that till he said it. They're presented according to their orders. Birds of the air, fish of the sea, creatures that crawl about on the ground. Only humanity is presented as sexually differentiated in the creation account. I'd never thought of that until he pointed it out. Leave it to a rabbi to teach you how to read the Old Testament. The text is saying things even by what it doesn't say. It's not just about this or that passage in Genesis. In fact, throughout the prophets, the relationship between God and Israel is described in terms of the covenant between husband and wife. It's in Isaiah. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Ezekiel. It's in Hosea. Moreover, to build on that, if you think about the Song of Songs, the Song of Songs is an extended love poem between a bride and a groom. In the Jewish tradition, the Song of Songs is considered a reflection on the relationship between God and Israel. But in the Christian tradition, the Songs is considered a reflection on the relationship between God and the individual soul. So this question of marriage... It's not just in Leviticus. It's not just in Genesis. It involves the whole fabric of the Old Testament. And what's worth thinking about is this. If you look at what's written in the body in terms of God's plan, it is the union of man and woman open to life. What's written in the Old Testament, that marriage is the union of man and woman that's open to life. And the Old Testament only adds to that, that that becomes a model for our relationship with God. So 
the Old Testament is reinforcing what's already written in the body. What about the New Testament? And here it's important not just to get caught up in the hermeneutics of what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1. Because some people want to make it just about that. Yeah, but when Paul says that, maybe he means this or that. Well, what Paul says there might mean one thing or another. And how are you going to figure out what St. Paul means? Well, see, stop making it just about St. Paul. Do you believe that all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit? That's a common Christian conception. And if you do, then the Holy Spirit is the principal author who's trying to say something through St. Paul. And the best way to figure out what the Holy Spirit is trying to say through St. Paul is to look at what the Holy Spirit says in the rest of the New Testament. Where do we start when we look at the New Testament? We start with the words of Jesus. Now, I'm no fan of red-letter Bibles. And why not? Because a red-letter Bible says... That the most important thing is what Jesus says. I think what Jesus does is just as important as what he says. He teaches us in his words, but he also teaches us in his deeds. His cross, after all, his crucifixion is not a word he spoke. So that's not in red letters, so that's not important. Oh no, that's just as important as anything else, right? But still, we do start with the words of Jesus, And we need to point out that Jesus himself explicitly affirms the Old Testament understanding of marriage. He does it in Matthew 19. He does it in Mark 10. And in fact, in Matthew 9, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. Why does he do that? Because the Old Testament says that God's relationship to the world is the relationship of bridegroom to bride. Jesus is God in the flesh, Therefore, he is the bridegroom. But you don't have to just look at the words of Jesus. And what you'll notice is that the New Testament presupposes and confirms the fabric of the Old Testament about God's relationship to the world being the relationship between bridegroom and bride. It's in Matthew 9, which I just mentioned. It's in Matthew 25. It's in John 3. It's in 2 Corinthians 11. I betrothed you to one husband, Jesus Christ, to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. It's in Revelation 19 and 21. Come, I will show you the bride. The bride is the church, and Jesus Christ is the lamb. There's the wedding again at the very end. But in point of fact, it's not just this or that quote from the New Testament. It's fundamentally the example of Jesus himself all through his life, but let's just look at the high point of his life. At the Last Supper and on the cross, Jesus Christ made a complete gift of himself to us so that we might have life. And that's, just, that's not just a Catholic teaching. Now, Catholics say something more than that in the Eucharist, but every Christian believes that about Jesus. At the Last Supper and on the cross, he made a gift of himself to us so that we might have life. And marriage is a form of discipleship. Marriage is a way of imitating Jesus Christ. And marriage imitates Jesus Christ when a man and a woman make a complete gift of one another so that there might be life. Again, as Catholics, we call marriage a sacrament. But every Christian believes that marriage is a form of discipleship. So this teaching is not the exclusive provenance of Catholics. Here's what John Paul II, and by the way, I'm not making this up. People will look at me and say, well, you just put all together, and that's nice. I didn't make it up. Here's what John Paul II had to say about it. And I think this is worth pondering. The communion between God and his people the subject of the entire Old and New Testament. It's the communion between God and his people finds definitive fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Of course, that's what all Christians believe. Where is John Paul II looking? He's looking to Jesus Christ as the answer to the question of humanity. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom who loves and gives himself as the savior of humanity. Jesus loves. Why does Jesus love? Because God is love and Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus loves 
What does love do? Love makes a gift of itself. God is love. Love makes a gift of itself. Jesus is God. Jesus is love. Jesus makes a gift of himself. It's very simple. Uniting humanity to himself as his body. Jesus unites himself to us as his body. Just as husband and wife become one flesh, so Jesus becomes one flesh with us. And again, we have a particular understanding of that from the Eucharist, but that's what St. Paul says. We become one body with Christ. In the sacrifice which Jesus Christ makes of himself on the cross for his bride, the church, There is entirely revealed that plan which God has imprinted on the humanity of man and woman since their creation. What does it all mean? John Paul II says, look to the cross. In Jesus Christ on the cross, you will find what was written in the flesh of man and woman from the beginning of creation. I was made to make a complete gift of myself to you so that there might be life. The cross is at the heart of marriage. Brilliant. The Trinity also has something to do with it, and you might ask how. Here's how. The Old Testament reveals to us that we are made in the image and likeness of God. The New Testament reveals to us that God is the Trinity. So we're in the image and likeness of the Trinity. What's the Trinity? A communion of persons whose union brings forth life. Marriage was made to be an icon of the Trinity, a living sacrament of the Trinity, a representation of the Trinity. And it is when marriage is a community of persons whose union brings forth the possibility of life. In other words, what is it about so far? It's about the body. It's about the Old Testament. It's about the New Testament. It's about the cross. It's about the Trinity. So you can change the definition of marriage If you're willing to throw out the body and the Old Testament and the New Testament and the cross and the Trinity. You see, it's not as simple as throwing out Leviticus 18 and 1 Corinthians 6. In fact, you have to throw out the entire fabric of the faith to do it. The Catechism summarizes it this way. This is paragraph 2331. And in himself, he lives a mystery of personal loving communion. That's the Trinity. Creating the human race in his own image, God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation and thus the capacity and responsibility of love and communion. Once again, the catechism is not creating some new teaching. It's simply summarizing the teaching of Scripture. So by way of summary, what does the church offer as a differential principle for marriage? The church says that the differential principle is evident in the body itself. It's written on the body. The union of a man and woman whose union is open to life. You can read that off of the body itself. It's revealed in the Old Testament, which says that marriage is the union of a man and woman, which union is open to life, which models our relationship with God. It's revealed in the Trinity, a communion of persons whose union brings forth life, And it's revealed in Jesus Christ at the Last Supper and on the cross. A complete gift of self to the other that opens up to life. Whatever is consistent with that, and they're all consistent with one another, is ruled in. And whatever is not consistent is ruled out. So what's in? The exclusive and lifelong union of one man and one woman in a union that's open to life. What's out? Yes, same-sex marriage is out, but so is contraception, so is divorce, so is sex before marriage, so is sex outside of marriage, so is pornography, so are any acts that are not open to life. In other words, um, maybe about 95% of our sexual culture is out. And I sometimes think that that's why people don't want to engage the question up here. Because it immediately leads to all of these. What does the gospel do? It challenges our culture. No surprise there. What we can't do is point the finger here and say, you need to change. But we don't. It all goes together. Lastly, 
You know that the bishops are also concerned about religious liberty. Why be concerned about any of this? After all, it doesn't touch me. Well, if you're not simply concerned about the truth of the question, let me point out these things. First of all, oh yeah, all right, did you, so this is from Canada. A man ran this ad in a Canadian newspaper, and it said Romans 1, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, 1 Corinthians 6, means no same-sex marriage. The man was brought before the Canadian Human Rights Commission for hate speech, just for listing this. And the Human Rights Commission said, well, this here, this graphic, of a man and a man holding hands with a slash through them, that's not hate speech. But the biblical passages are. So the man was found guilty of hate speech and fined many thousands of dollars, and so was the Canadian newspaper. And they appealed the ruling to the court of second instance. The court of second instance upheld the lower court ruling, and so he appealed to the highest human rights commission in Canada. And the highest human rights commission in Canada finally found him not guilty of hate speech. But tell me this, who will ever list these biblical passages in Canada again? What newspaper would ever run them? So it becomes a question of free speech. Or did you see this decision last fall? German judge declares infant circumcision illegal. In other words, it's illegal for Jews to practice their religion in Germany. That's a stunning decision. Now, this has since been overturned by the German parliament. They created a religious exemption so that Jews and Muslims who choose to do this can practice their religion. It's quite extraordinary given the history of Germany. Now, you may say, listen, that's Canada and that's Europe and things are crazy there, but this is America. Things like that don't happen here. Right. I thought that's what the HHS mandate was about the government telling us what elements of our religion we can and cannot practice. But for those who don't think that the HHS mandate is fundamentally about religious liberty, let me tell you the story of the photographer, the florist, and the baker. The photographer is in the state of New Mexico. And the photographer was approached by a same-sex couple to be the photographer for their wedding. Now, New Mexico doesn't allow gay marriage or civil unions. It doesn't say anything about any of that. And the photographer said, no, I'm sorry, there are lots of photographers who would be willing to do that for you, but because of my religious beliefs, I can't participate in that. And she was sued for discrimination. And in the first court, she lost. And so she appealed. And in the second court, she lost. Now her case is before the Supreme Court of the state of New Mexico. And we'll see whether or not she's free to practice her religion and run her business according to Christian principles in New Mexico. The florist was in the state of Washington. And the florist was approached by a frequent customer to provide the flowers for a same-sex wedding. And she said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. There are, listen, there are a lot of florists who would be happy to do that for you. But because of my relationship with Jesus Christ and my beliefs, I can't participate in that. Now, the guy who asked her to do that was a longtime customer. And she said, look, I'm not, I have nothing against selling flowers to gay people. I'll do that for all kinds of things, but I won't do it in support of weddings. Not only was she sued, she was sued by her state attorney general for discrimination. So not only is it in the courts, the states are taking up the case and deciding whether or not people can run their business according to their religious principles. Lastly, the baker. The baker is in Colorado. Similar case. The baker said, look, I am happy to provide cakes for gay people for graduations, for birthdays, you name it. But I'm not going to provide them for weddings because I don't believe that's right. He was sued, sued by the ACLU, but also by his state attorney general, and he faces not only fines, but possibly jail time for refusing to participate in these. So you see, we do have these cases. And consider, again, the California transgender student law. So if a little boy, anatomically a little boy, decides he's a girl, 
He can use the girls' restroom and use the girls' locker room and join the girls' swim team or basketball team or whatever. Same for a little girl who decides that she's a boy. This is now the law in California. How long will it be before a Catholic school ends up in court? Well, I'm sorry if you say you're not going to do that, but you're in violation of the law of the state of California. So what started out as a question of, well, look, can't you just let other people act according to their beliefs? Is becoming a question of the enforcement of a new societal and moral norm in which everyone has to participate. That, I think, is cause for concern. So what I want to do is take one moment for silence and then entertain questions and have conversation. Let us recall again that we are in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Thank you.